Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. This week, we have an amazing person, Janet Handel. She is the founder of the Transplant Recipients Immunocompromised Patient Advocacy Group, Transplant and Immune, T-R-A-I-P-A-G. You'll probably do a better job talking about this group. So, um, Janet, welcome. Hi, Shmuel. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be on your podcast today. I'll tell you a little bit about myself and, and how I came to be an activist uh, in this area. I had a kidney transplant in 2010 as a result of having Alport's disease. Those of us with transplants are on medication for the rest of our lives to suppress our immune systems so that we don't reject the organ. COVID was really terrifying to we transplant recipients as it was, as it was to everyone else. And we were thrilled when the vaccines came out. I was fortunate, thanks to my sister, Laura Burns, to learn about and join the Johns Hopkins Vaccine Efficacy Study in January of 2021. So everybody was so curious about and, and where, when are we going to see the data? What's it going to say? We don't know. And so by March of that year, the first data was published in JAMA, I believe. And, and it showed that the two vaccines did not work well for those of us who were immunosuppressed. Well, to me and to everyone that I knew that was a transplant person, this was a shock. Maybe not to you because you're an infectious disease doctor, but to us, we were stunned. I mean, I had already booked plane reservations to uh, leave town, you know, a month after my second vaccine. Wow. So it was stunning to like say, guess what? You're not safe. And and as I talked to everybody else, because guess what? The CDC was saying at that point, you know, you've had your two vaccines. It's two weeks later. You're good to go. Take off your mask. Go live your life. You know, the world's a good place again. And we know of several people that were transplant people that followed that exact advice and died as a result of it. Mm. So this this lack of communication about the risk that we faced was was so profoundly upsetting to me. I, I did everything that I knew to do to try and get the word out. Of course, contacted every transplant patient that I knew of, which turned out to be more than I thought when I started, you know, adding them up. But I contacted the CDC. I contacted major uh, media outlets. I contacted my transplant center. I contacted my GI doctor, who was like the chief medical officer at a major New York hospital, everybody. And there was like just crickets. There was no response whatsoever. I did reach somebody at the CDC who was focused on it, who was the, I guess, chief medical officer for COVID. And he worked very hard to get this information out and was, was, pleased when he they were able to get the information published three weeks after the JAMA article. <laughs> this is not, this is not adequate. It, you just cannot, you, you can't conduct medical practice in this way. And so I also, as this was going on and this information was coming out, I knew that there were hundreds of people in the Johns Hopkins study, but I certainly didn't know who they were. So I, I spoke with the head of the study and, and said, really strongly encouraged him to communicate and establish a webinar process with the patients in this study because 
we deserve to have to know the information that they had. I mean, not very many of them are going to be looking for JAMA articles. So they agreed to do that, thankfully. And so whenever they would publish new data, you know, we would have a webinar. And it was on one of these, I guess, the second webinar. Everybody's in the chat, and we're so happy to connect with other people that are living in our own personal version of hell, being immunocompromised and not being able to live a normal life. How can we stay in contact with one another? It's so good to just to see other people and talk to other people who are going through what we are. I said, gee, I've never done this, but I'm going to try to set up a Facebook group on the fly. Let's see if I can do it. So anyway, I was able to do that. I dropped the, the link to the Facebook group in the chat, and uh, I asked my sister, Laura, if she would admin, you know, be an admin with me. She said she would. And by, you know, three hours later, we had 120 people in the group. And wow. now we have uh, over 2,200 in the group. So it's been a real, it's been a great place for us to communicate with other people in our situation and to share information. I think that you would find this group is a very science-based group. Laura and I keep a very close eye on it. So, you know, no trolls permitted. The, the discourse is civil, but I think people, when people have a question, they put it to our group. When people get sick with COVID, as is happening more, they reach out and say, this is happening, that's happening. And, and there's information there. Uh, we have a very extensive files section on there. So we put up articles as they are published. We'll put them in the files section when people, you know, just information that people need to function in, in, in our, from our you know, particular situation. Now, this is T-R-A-I-P-A-G. Right, TRAPEG. It stands for Transplant Recipients and Immunocompromised Patient Advocacy Group. Now, our, our Facebook group has a different name because when we started the Facebook group, remember, we were the Johns Hopkins study and we were transplant patients. So the, the Facebook group name is different and it is called Transplant vaccine efficacy study. I think mm-hmm. that's it. And it, in the middle, midst of this, I guess, you know, after two months in, in our group, we really realized that there was a need to have advocacy work done. And there were a number of people that were interested in doing advocacy. And so we thought, well, we need to have a name for that that is broader than transplants, because what we learned actually probably during the, you know, one of the early Johns Hopkins webinars there were two arms to the study. There were transplant people and there were other immunocompromised people. That Actually, there are more of those people than there are of transplant people. And so we decided, yes, you're welcome into our group because everybody was asking, can we come into your group? And, and we also thought that they should be represented in the title of our advocacy group. So hence the name TREPEG. Now, if I go online and I put into Google TREPEG, one of the first things that comes up is comment from TREPEG to the FDA. Um, and uh, it really drives home how important a group like yours can be in terms of uh, providing the regulators and the government officials a view from the field. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how that process happens, how you got involved, how you had, I'm going to use a, uh, a word true to my heritage, how you had the chutzpah to do it. Well, I think that 
One of the things that we thought, I mean, we have advocated a bit for a number of different things. The first thing that we advocated for was getting the third vaccine. A number of us, because we knew that we were not producing antibodies with two vaccines. So a number of us decided and and did go and, and were able to get a third vaccine, even though it was not officially authorized at that point. And what, so we began then to really press the FDA to authorize a third vaccine so that, that we would be protected. And, you know, I think in the course of everything, we, we really felt it was important that people understand what we were going through. And I think for the FDA, with the, the first time we reached out to the FDA, we actually compiled a set of vignettes of people's, you know, personal stories. And that I think was very compelling. And so, I think that, that we took that and we really have, have seen how often regulators and, and people in government in various positions don't really know what it is like to stand in our shoes and, and that it's very valuable to them to, to see what our experience is. And, you know, I think that, that you know, at one point we were really trying to, um, I don't even remember what we were, were pressing on at a particular point. And I reached out to someone that I used to, I, I worked at the Clinton White House in, in 92 and, and so have relationships that I, I've maintained since then. One of them worked at the FDA a gazillion years ago. And so I reached out to her about contacting the FDA and she encouraged me. She said, you just need to contact the White House and, and let them know what's going, you know, what your perspectives are, you know, and just, you know, if you're going to swing, swing big. So we did. And Fortunately, I, you know, it's just funny how your life has all these these permutations and connections. Somebody that I worked with who was a very dear friend during the campaign that I had fallen, kind of fallen out of contact with, I reached out to her because I knew that she knew Ron Klain, who was the then chief of staff. And, and as it turns out, she had had a kidney transplant like a year ago. And I thought, well, small world. By the way, do you know you're not protected? That's the first thing. Wow. And of course, she didn't. And so from there, you know, then I asked her to, if she would help us and she was very happy to help us. And, and she's been very helpful to us all along. So, you know, we just, from there, you just, you know, you send a letter, you find the email addresses and, you know, you, you put the information out there. I can't say that every time I've done that, I've gotten a response, but most of the times I get a response. So I'm a doctor. And um, I was trained to say, and I do believe it, that I've learned more medicine from my patients than I've learned from textbooks. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's many ways to learn from our patients. What are some of the things that we as doctors could do better in terms of at the individual patient level and in terms of advocacy? Well, I think... The first thing that, that, that I can tell you that we think is, is there needs to be a dramatic improvement in the outbound communication from our physicians, from our transplant centers, you know, um, immunodeficiency centers, because there are so few that are even now doing this kind of outbound communication. And so if you think about, you know, the various things that have happened along the way that, that we think they should have been communicating about you know, you're still at risk with two vaccines. Uh, you can get an additional booster now. Now is the time. Evyashel, Bevtelevimab, Remdesivir, all these things. We, we've heard virtually nothing. We've done a, a survey of our group 
to ask people how their transplant centers, if, you know, the, the level of communication and so few, maybe like 10 out of 250 have done any kind of outbound communication with regard to COVID and, and these specific things that are evolving and changing. So that's the first thing I think that needs to happen. The second thing is really stay current on the research and the treatments. You know, our group regularly tells us that when they bring something to the attention of, of and I'm just not talking about their PCP, I'm talking about their transplant center physician or the nurse practitioner there, they don't know it. And mm -hmm. we end up, they print something out and, and take that to them and inform them, or here's the link where you'll find this change in the guideline or this change in the prescribing information. And and I have to admit that that I work at Johns Hopkins, which I think is uh, on the cutting edge of so many things. And and there's mm -hmm. definitely been situations where patients or patients' family have asked me about what I thought about the results of a new study. I think they were maybe being kind instead of saying, "Hey, how come you don't know <laughs> that this new study is out?" Right. And right. Uh, and and on the one hand, it's humbling. On the other hand, I'm very grateful that they pointed me in that direction because I just hadn't heard about it. Right. Well, one of the things I think too, and, and this is not, you know, to say to the healthcare providers, but I do say this to the CDC and to the professional association, they need to do a much better job of getting life-saving information out to their membership and, and CDC out to the physicians. You know, the first notice again about our study that went out was three weeks after it had been published in JAMA, and it was buried on like, I don't know, page eight or nine in like a 20-page document. I mean, how many people that were even reading that document do I think saw it and focused on it? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in the war time, in the time of pandemics, and we think, I mean, everybody is saying there will be more pandemics. This is not the first pandemic, you know, only pandemic we're going to have. You know, they need to rethink how they communicate and how vital that communication is in preserving people's lives. Now, one thing is uh, guidelines are often put together by professionals, some of which are at the bedside, some of which are at a distance from the bedside, but it's not common that guidelines have patient representatives. And how do you think we can get more input from the people that are actually living with the disease or with the condition yeah. into guideline documents? Well, I mean, I, I think that I think it would be wonderful if, if people that are generating guidelines would put patients on their panels so that 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 human aspect and, and how it impacts the patient is, is a part of the decision making, you know, or not to mm -hmm. say that it, it should impact the science and science needs to, you know, the scientific process needs to, to be pursued. But I think it, it's really critical that they understand the impact on the patients and hear from the patients about various aspects of the guidelines that they're working on. I, I think that's so important. I know that institutional review boards are ahead of the curve in terms of having patient advocates and patient representatives. And I've been on, uh, on panels for funding uh, for example, for when the military has funding, they uh, they also have patient advocates, uh, patient representatives on the panel. But I think that having the input of the people that are actually living with the disease or with the condition can be so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
One of the things I wanted to say, you know, when we talk about what the major issues are that are facing the immune compromised patients in the, the era of COVID, is there needs to be a long-term solution uh, because there are going to be new pandemics. Mm-hmm. What we have seen so far is, is that there's just, you know, we are invisible by and large. That's how we feel to the CDC and the NIH. And, and by that, I mean, if you look at the CDC, they do not collect, they don't have a category in the death statistics for immunocompromised. So if you want to go and pull that statistic, you cannot easily do that. That's a problem. So, so that's just an, an indication. The research dollars are not allocated to us. You know, mm-hmm. the, the study, there was a, a proposal to the NIH to look at, at vaccine efficacy in immunocompromised and, and specifically to reduce immunosuppressive medication in advance of the vaccination to see how that, that would work. That study took, you know, proposal took, I think, nine months to a year to be responded to and finally funded, at which point it was completely moot. You know, nobody is going to like, like not get vaccinated, you know, so you can participate in this study, you know. So, and for us, it was very fortunate for the transplant and immunocompromised community that, you know, that there was a private individuals who were willing to fund the, the Johns Hopkins study that we participated in, because otherwise many more of people would have died as a result of it. So, you know, and that brings up another thing, you know, the clinical trials that were done on the vaccine did not include any immunocompromised people. And we understand they don't want immunocompromised people who have much more complex health situations to muddy the data. They're looking to get clean data that they can go to the FDA and get approved. We understand that. But at the same time, we think that the FDA should encourage, you know, in situations like this, that there be a separate arm for immunocompromise that kicks off at the moment that the first study kicks off so that you know how whatever drug you're studying or vaccine you're studying is going to impact us. The fact that we didn't even begin to be studied until after the vaccine was approved is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it just, that needs to change. Um, It's the same thing that's happened with the therapeutics in that you could argue that some of the most important groups for therapeutics are immunocompromised patients and the, the studies, whether it's for Paxilid or Molnupiravir or the monoclonals, except even Evusheld, which was approved for immunocompromised patients, wasn't studied in immunocompromised patients. Right. right. Yeah. And, and and you see this again and again and again. So, I mean, I think that, that a decision should be made, you know, at the FDA to require this of manufacturers at the NIH to say this study needs to be funded now. You know, I think also the NIH should really give thought to should they have an, an office of strategic response so that when you are faced with a pandemic like this, how do you fast track studies that really are, are critical to pre- mm-hmm. preserving life? You know, I think that, that, you know, the typical glacier pace at which things move at the NIH should be looked at. And then not to say that everything needs to happen fast, but sometimes some things need to happen quickly. Now you have a background outside of medicine. What are some of the lessons from your regular professional life that can be applied? Well, 
So before I got involved in this, you know, I, I have an MBA. I've worked in, in, in banking, and then I've also worked in, in technology and really love technology. So, you know, I would say that, that I think something that is critical is to have a bias for action, you know, and, and, and certainly for patients in a situation like us, having a bias for action, I think, is critical. I think also being broadly networked is an important thing to do so that you can, can pull in resources when you're faced with a challenge that you haven't had before. Now, I've often said that, that democracy is a participation sport, and that sport is beyond just going to the ballot box, and advocacy is a big part of it. How would you advise people that have an issue, an, an important issue that is not being well addressed by um, by priorities, by national priorities. In, in your particular case, it's being immune compromised with in the teeth of a pandemic. Other people have other conditions. Uh, is there a playbook for being an effective advocate? Well, I don't think that I would say that there's a playbook. I mean, but but I think that that it's important to find like-minded individuals. You know, you you need to find out who the people are that that share your com your your problem or your issue that you are advocating for and work to organize within that group because your your power will stem from that. I mean, one thing that that you know I I can tell you from my days in there, you know, where I worked in electoral politics is numbers count. And that is the case too in in advocacy like this. It's important to have enough people who say to, you know, people in power, this is an important issue that you need to address. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would say there's that. And then identify who those people in power are that might be responsive to your particular situation. And, you know, for, for us, we, we know various legislators on the Hill who are, and congressmen and, and, and senators who are really sensitive to this issue uh, Transplant people that have, are transplanted and people that are living with immunocompromising disease. Now, it's so easy, particularly if you read the paper or on social media, to be cynical. Yet you have a very uh, optimistic, upbeat, resilient approach. How do you maintain that? Well, I guess that that I maintain it myself through through my connections with other people, and I am fortunate. With TREPAG, we have a, a steering committee that are about, there are seven of us, and we talk all the time about, you know, whatever it is that's going on that we're trying to move forward, you know, a letter that we might be sending out or, you know, an initiative that we think that's important to pursue. But sometimes we also just get get on the Zoom and just talk about the woes of our lives or the frustrations of our lives. And, and you know, I think having that shared experience really helps. And I, and I think that for us, the fact that we are doing something to try and improve our situation is critical. And I think that what we have seen also in our, our Facebook group is this sharing of information and caring for one another. I mean, one of the things that, that people who are not living and don't know somebody that's immunocompromised may not understand fully is that, that we all live with an undercurrent of fear. You know, it's just there. It's under the surface. You know, you do your best and you to maintain a positive attitude and 
and keep going. But underneath it all is the level of fear. What is going to happen if I get sick? Will I die? Will I be intubated? Will I be get long COVID? Because you know you're at much greater risk. You know, and in mm-hmm. the very beginning before we had the vaccines, it was I, I can't hug this person that I love, my grandchild or my son or my daughter, because it might cause this hug might result in my death. And that's not a joke. I mean, it sounds very extreme, but it's not. And it certainly was not before the vaccines. I mean, what we know among people that are, you know, transplanted and it is that after some number of vaccines, we do get some level, most of us, some level of antibodies. So there is some level of protection. That's mm-hmm. not all of everyone, but many of us do have some level of protection. But beyond that, I mean, we still are told to take precautions and we do still take precautions. I don't myself go into any indoor space without a mask on, have not in, in now three and a half years. Mm-hmm. I, even so, I got COVID recently and you just don't, and, and you know, that, that fear, even when you get COVID like, and you're getting sicker, you know, how bad is this going to be? You know, am I going to end up in the hospital? It all goes through your mind. Mm-hmm. So be- because mm-hmm. of that, and this whole thing about being, you know, you're not going to concerts, you're not going to a play, you're not going here, there's isolation. Then you wear a mask. I mean, I live in New York, and so we don't get bullied in New York for wearing masks. But I can tell you, I've heard from many people in our Facebook group who get bullied in other places in the country because they are wearing a mask. And so, we, we just have to, we deal with that. We hear this from our own families. I mean, me, my, my dearest friend in the world who, you know, would live down the hall from me for 35 years, refused to get vaccinated. And that mm-hmm. meant I, you know, we used to go back and forth between each other's apartments all the time. And I had not been in her apartment in, in three years. I mean, I, I've been now recently because I had COVID and I feel like, okay, well, it's okay for me to go in there. But you know, this everybody, every person has a story like this, if not multiple stories like this about family members. Another one of our people who has blood cancer went to a family wedding and, and you know, people there refused to test in advance of the wedding, you know, like close family members to refuse to, to do a, a rapid antigen test before the wedding. So, you know, this is hard stuff. And approaching the holidays, it's particularly hard. You know, people know what's going to be happening and, and or what they're not going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And so our group, you know, has really provided support to one another that I think has been, in, been invaluable and helps us to maintain, you know, maintain a positive outlook and, and get through the times that are discouraging. Because I think everybody has times that are, they feel very discouraged because it's, it's not easy. Well, this is amazing information for physicians that, like me, who are used to having a relationship with our patients that is has a certain dynamic. I'm the physician, you're the patient, we're working together toward improving your health. But I, I think it's so important for us physicians to have that additional relationship where we see you as, as colleagues in working toward learning and improving about the care patients in, in my particular area, it's transplant infectious disease and oncology infectious disease, but it, it's so powerful in so many areas. And I really wish that we as physicians had more encounters and, and experiences with advocacy groups, especially powerful ones like yours. 
Well, thanks. I mean, that's nice to hear, but I I can tell you from our standpoint that we wish that there were more physicians that had your attitude rather than being annoyed with us when we come in and say, by the way, did you know the FDA changed their prescribing requirement on this? You know, they, I don't know, they get a little upset sometimes, but they don't always like a patient that's telling them or questioning them. That can be a challenging thing. And I can tell you that, that it is an uncomfortable feeling to, as Physicians and doctors, we uh, are often uh, in a position where we feel like we must know everything about everything. And it is an uncomfortable feeling that when uh, we're confronted with the fact that we actually aren't the most knowledgeable person in the room about a certain situation. However, that discomfort doesn't mean that we need to direct it at the person who's actually helping us learn. One of the guiding lessons that I try to carry, I don't always carry, but I try to carry it is when somebody points out something that I could do better or that I didn't do as well. I try to look at it as though somebody uh, pointed out that I dropped my wallet. So I would never be upset at them if I, that, that they would say, oh, you dropped your wallet. And, and instead, I'd be very happy. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm always happy, but because it is a, a discomfortable feeling, but it is important. Yeah. And I mean, we try also encourage within our, our, our Facebook group for people, you know, to handle things in a, in a, a diplomatic way. You know, if you're going to give people information, you know, here's the link. I don't know if you're aware of this, blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, there's, there's a nice way to do it and a less nice way, way to do it. So, you know, it's yeah. better if you can be nice about it. You know, one thing I wanted to just, I know that we're probably clo- coming close to time, but one thing I, I do think is really important to say to people who are immunocompromised is get your contingency plan together now, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, the, the number of people that we are seeing suddenly, like in the last, I would say, month or two months that are getting sick with COVID in our group as compared to all the time before, it's really dramatically changed. And so many, many more people are getting sick. And so what we tell people is get your contingency plan together, talk to your team, talk to your doctor about what you will do, what he or she will do if you, you know, call them up and say, I've been, you know, I've got a positive test or my spouse is positive. I have symptoms, but I'm negative, you know, get all of that in place now so that you, at the point that that happens to you, you just start executing. You're not first in a discovery mode. Because guess what? A lot of times that happens over the weekends, over the holidays, and it's much more difficult to, to reach the people you need to reach. And what we know in, in a, is that people that get treatment earlier do better. And you'll be able to get that treatment earlier if you know what it is exactly that you're going to do. I could not agree with you more. And I'll, I'll share a personal experience in that. Our, our family just went through COVID. My older son had COVID and then I had COVID. And then meanwhile, my wife and my younger son did not have COVID. And we were scrambling as to, okay, how do we wear a mask inside the house? Who's going to use which bathrooms? And uh, and how long are we going to need to wear masks? Um, the, the ones that were exposed, but not infected. Even the dog got stressed out by the whole thing. And this is in a family of an infectious disease doctor. So uh, it really is a uh, a stressful thing when COVID hits your house, particularly if there's immunocompromised people living in your house. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, my my husband and I both got sick the week of Thanksgiving. And, and, you know, what what 
was straight, you know, an unusual thing about us is, is that my husband started to feel sick on Monday. And then, you know, I started to have symptoms Tuesday morning. We went for a PCR test at noon on Tuesday. His test came back positive on Wednesday. Mine did not. I took another PCR test on Wednesday, still not positive. He, meanwhile, he's gotten treatment. You know, he's started treatment. I cannot because I don't have a positive test, even though I had a you know negative flu test, negative RSV test, and I'm getting sicker, and I have the symptoms. And so I still could not get, you know, I did line up where I was going to get outpatient remdesivir, which, by the way, is also not an easy thing to, to, to do. And I would encourage people to, you know, try and find out that piece of information. But mm -hmm. And as a re but but once I did get my positive test, I was started treatment. You know, twelve hours later. So and that, you know, I would have started earlier if it had been on the same day. But it, that was Thanksgiving. I got my my positive test. I will tell you, as a result of my own experience and my frustration with that, and you know, I talked to a couple of different infectious disease doctors who said, you know, yeah, I would you I'm I would diagnose you with COVID. You know, you don't might, may not have a positive test yet, but you know, all these other things, you're diagnosed with COVID, presumed COVID. Yeah. So, it, it in my frustration and it kind of why I just like I don't know, outrage may be too strong of a word, but I was I was upset at this situation because like, I'm the immunocompromised person. If anybody should be getting treated early, rather than it should be me, not my husband, you know? So while I was sick, I wrote this letter to, to, you know, the person at the FDA. I said, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I'd like you to take a look at this. And guess what? They changed the requirement. So now you no longer, if you're immunocompromised, you no longer need to have a positive viral test if you have uh, a diagnosis of COVID. Amazing. So just to to kind of reiterate how you were in a situation where it's obvious that you had COVID, your husband had COVID, you had symptoms, you were getting worse, the test was still negative, but it was bound to turn positive, which it, which it ultimately did. You were denied early therapy because of a procedural thing for a drug that's FDA approved, not just emergency youth authorized, but FDA approved. And through your work in terms of pointing out this logistical hurdle, you were able to change the wording on the uh, FDA approval. Amazing. So in the last minute or so, I really want to thank you for taking the time and meeting with us. Is there any other thing that you think that uh, our listeners should should know about? You know, I guess I would just say, you know, communication, uh, if I were to, you know, to say the most important thing I think is, is communication needs to be improved by, by, you know, outbound communication, transplant centers and, and other centers taking care of immunocompromised people. That can make such a huge difference in people's lives. And I really do hope that that, that is one of the positive outcomes of this pandemic. Tremendous. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Thank you, Janet Handel, for giving us uh, a different view than we're used to getting, but such an important one. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.